Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello and welcome to this podcast mini-series analyzing humanitarianism through the lens of private resilient development cases from Kenya. My name is Edwin Schmartin, I'm a PhD candidate at the Norwegian University of Life Science and the host for this podcast. Together with colleagues at the Norwegian University of Life Science and the Peace Research Institute Oslo, through this podcast, we bring together humanitarian actors, scholars, development practitioners, community leaders and civil society actors to discuss the implications of climate resilient development for humanitarian policy and action. Pre-case studies in the Kenyan drylands are used to explore different dimensions of the enabling conditions which underpin climate resilient development. In the first episode of this mini-series, Professor Siri Eriksen described climate resilient development. Climate resilient development is a concept, concept that's been brought to the forefront, especially the past 10 years and in particular in the most recent IPCC assessment report. And it really talks about how we need to shift development, a different form of development that places both climate risk and sustainable development at the center of how we do development. So it's a form of development where we mobilize adaptation and mitigation to support sustainable development. And when we talk about sustainable development here, it's a deeper form of development in terms of ensuring well-being, uh, reduced poverty, ecosystem health, equity and justice, low global warming levels and, and lower risk. So multiple dimensions of what sustainable development or climate resilient development outcomes look like. In this third episode, we're discussing the case of Samburu County in northern Kenya, and we're lucky to have Jackson Washira with us. Uh, welcome, Jackson. Thank you so much, Edwige. Um, and so to start with, could you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Thanks once more, Edwige, for having me. And my name is Jackson Washira, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Nairobi here in Kenya. And uh, my research uh, interests are in the interplay between uh, pastoralist climate change adaptation and um, NGO-led community-based conservation. Uh, with my field work being undertaken in uh, Samburu County of Kenya. And uh, I'm part of a bigger project that is funded by the Danish government uh, that's implemented by the University of Nairobi, University of Copenhagen, and a host of other institutes from uh, Denmark and Kenya that seeks to understand the interplay between um, land rights and uh, and resilience uh, with with the work um, happening mainly in Kajiado and and Samburu. So previously I worked as a consultant and as a humanitarian worker mainly in uh, the arid and semi-arid parts of of Kenya, um, where I was um, mainly involved with projects and programs uh, designed on 
uh, natural resource management and um, climate change adaptation and, and, and resilience building. And so for someone who's never been to Samburu County, how would you describe the county conditions and the communities that are a part of it? Samburu County is it's, it's a really huge administrative region. As a matter of fact, measuring about 21,000 uh, kilometers squared and it's located approximately 200 to 300 kilometers north of Nairobi. And it's one of the 23 out of about 47 counties in Kenya, which the government considers as arid and semi-arid or marginalized. So um, Samburu is arid and semi-arid because it receives, mainly receives uh, less than 700 millimeters of um, rainfall per year. And it's characterized by uh, quite high mean annual temperatures of around 30 to 33 degrees Celsius. And um, that said, there's also a, a quite small part of the county, uh, just about 8% of the county, that's also quite high lad and has um, uh, rainfall amounts that exceed um, 700 uh, millimeters per year. And it's um, the region of the county that is mainly inhabited by agro-pastoralists, that's people who rely on um, rain-fed agriculture and livestock keeping. Otherwise, for the better part of the county, which is a lowland, um, more than 90% of the county is, is really lowland and hot and dry with um, high annual temperatures and low rainfall. And it's inhabited mainly by um, uh, nomadic pastoralists. So these are mainly Samburu pastoralists who rely on purely rely on livestock production for for livelihood. And because of the high variability of the um, of the of the lowlands or, or the county in general, these pastoralists uh, rely on mobility to move from one point to the other whether within the county or outside the, the county, sometimes many thousands of kilometers to look for water and, and, and pasture. So the county is also bordered by a couple of other arid and semi-arid counties, such as Trukana in the northwest, uh, Baringo in the southwest, Marsabit in the northeast, and Isiolo in the east, and, and, and Laikipia in the south. So yeah, so the county is uh, sandwiched within numerous other arid and semi-arid counties, but there is extreme, or rather there is quite a lot of interactions between that county and the other counties, particularly because of semi-nomadic pastoralism. Could you tell us a bit more about some of the recurrent humanitarian crises that have affected um, Samburu County or, have, or are affecting, because of course we know there's an ongoing drought? So arid and semi-arid regions of Kenya uh, generally are quite susceptible to myriad uh, humanitarian issues uh, today and in the past. I think it's important that we, we look uh, beyond uh, today because mm -hmm. um, as, as mentioned, uh, by their very nature, arid and semi-arid regions are highly variable. And this is something that has existed for thousands of years. For instance, in history, we learn about um, catastrophic livestock uh, disease outbreaks that have literally wiped all the livestock in, in, in Samburu and um, in other parts of arid and Samaritan regions, such as in the southern regions, where the Maasai inhabit. 
But we also know about uh, severe droughts in these regions as well as conflicts, which which tend to uh, really disrupt lives and livelihoods in terms of enormous losses of lives and, and livelihoods. But with a specific attention to Samburu, I would highlight two main hazards that tend to result in humanitarian crisis. And, and the first one is drought. And as I mentioned, drought has been occurring in Samburu and other arid and semi-arid areas uh, historically. And that often results into enormous um, loss of uh, livestock. And um, that also results into hunger because majority of res- the residents of, of, of Samburu and other arid and semi-arid areas rely on livestock for for food as well as other customary um, uh, practices. But in as much as drought has been part and parcel of arid and semi-arid areas, uh, Samburu included, climate change has been really compounding uh, drought in these areas. So we understand uh, from research and interactions uh, with people in Samburu that, for instance, in earlier years, say before the 1980s, drought used to be cyclic and would occur every five you know, or so years. But in recent times, and particularly since the 1990s, drought has increasingly become you know, a more uh, sort of routine occurrence. As, as you mentioned, uh, we are currently having a severe drought in, in Samburu, as well as many other parts of um, arid and semi-arid Kenya. And this has resulted in um, extensive loss of uh, livestock thereby eroding severely uh, the livelihoods of uh, pastoralists. So currently we have had uh, these areas experience that, you know, about four failed drain seasons and predictions, including from ICPAC, uh, indicate that um, even the current uh, rainfall season is going to be to be dismal. So the result is, is that, you know, pastoralists have lost a lot of livestock. And um, a lot of them are in a perennial state of, of hunger, you know, having to rely on, uh, on relief and, uh, and, and such kind of humanitarian interventions to continue uh, living. So the second uh, humanitarian issue is conflict. And uh, just like drought, conflicts have also been uh, part and parcel of uh, lives and livelihoods in, um, in Samburu. Particularly, you know, between different ethnic groups. As I mentioned, Samburu is sandwiched between a couple of other pastoralist-inhabited counties, such as Trukana, such as Marsabit, such as Sisiolo, such as uh, Laikipia and Baringo. So what has happened uh, traditionally is that these communities have always tended to compete over, over resources, such as water and such as um, pasture. But also importantly, over boundaries. So what what this does is that is that sometimes um, there are um, sort of ethnic or inter-ethnic clashes that result into uh, extensive disruption of uh, of lives and, and and livelihoods. However, the, the the nature of conflict in in these areas have also really changed. So while traditionally uh, conflict was really around resources, boundaries, and water. We are having a situation whereby conflicts have become more compounded, uh, say by you know uh, the commercialization of um, uh, of, of cattle cattle rustling. Uh, talk about new um, dimensions of land use and land control. As as you know, for instance, we have extensive changes in land use in in Samburu with 
the notion of community-based conservation coming in and thereby raising quite some contestation about uh, who owns which parts of land and who gets um, uh, which benefits. And generally also because the broader Horn of Africa region is increasingly becoming porous, then we have the, the, the entry of complex sort of weapons that, that exacerbate conflicts and present conflicts today uh, in different manners and ways than, than we have historically known it in this region. It's interesting how you're raising how some of these um, dynamics while historic have really taken on huge shapes uh, nowadays. In your introduction, when you discussed as well the case of Sambru, you introduced it just as a marginalized region. I was wondering if you could tell a bit more about this, about how this is also historical, but now is also affecting today's response maybe to drought and conflicts, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Samburu is is, is uh, one of the regions that um, is even institutionally recognized by the government as marginalized. By marginalized, uh, we mean that sort of there has been a historical, has historically sanctioned um, neglect of, of these regions. And one of the main reasons why they have been neglected is, is, is because of uh, the persistence of a notion that has roots from, you know, colonial or regimes that that saw pastoralism as as a retrogressive practice or unproductive uh, pro, uh, practice that needed to be replaced uh, by more productive practices such as you know irrigation or agriculture, mm-hmm. and also uh, because uh, these regions are really far flung from uh, the capitals and the high potential areas, then there has been a tendency to other invest in basic um, resources and in, in, in infrastructure, so. What that does is that it complicates humanitarian uh, response because, as as you can see, we are talking about areas that are quite cut off from uh, mainstream uh, infrastructure in in, in the capitals. And uh, what that does is that it really, for instance, raises uh, the cost of response, be it, um, you know, uh, relief distribution. These areas are far, fl- far flung from the capitals and from the main centers of production. And these areas are also characterized with conflicts and therefore mobility to those areas in terms of humanitarian response sometimes can be um, uh, can, can be a bit constrained. Of course, there has been quite a lot of investments by especially in Kenya uh, since the, the, the early 2000s, uh, when the, the NAC government came in and over time there was a national policy for um, uh, arid and semi-arid areas that have been quite deliberate about enhancing accessibility, infrastructure, and basic service delivery in these areas. But um, we still live uh, in areas um, that um, comparatively with other parts of the country that are a bit detached and therefore quite difficult to access. And you mentioned um, that now there's also new debates about some form of adaptation, notably ecosystem, um, and some of the dimensions that have been highlighted as being essential for climate resilient development was, for instance, enabling ecosystem stewardship. But um, in in the case of Samburu, um, it's quite contested about who is seen as a good steward on the environment. Um, could you tell a bit more about that? Absolutely. So we 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 have not. Not so new thoughts around how adaptation 
could happen in in contexts like Samburu, where there's you know protracted humanitarian uh, situations such as you know um, hunger and erosion of um, uh, basic you know livelihoods such as uh, livestock production and uh, you know the notion for instance of um, community-based conservation has come out quite strongly the last few decades as um, as one of the ways that you know is thought that can enhance pastoralist adaptation to um, the adverse impacts of climate change and, and the idea is that uh, besides you know conservation of uh, ecosystem you know, conservation investments can also promote uh, livelihoods. So I think that's that's um, that's a great that's a great you know kind of thinking around how to enhance pastoralist resilience to adverse impacts of climate change. For instance, by tapping on um, revenue streams from uh, tourism and also you know promotion of education and promotion of diversification of livelihoods from incomes that come from uh, conservation clearly there's need for more research and 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 that's part of what I'm, I'm i'm trying to do for my phd so that we can really understand the interplay between ecosystem based adaptation or uh, community based conservation with with pastoralist climate change adaptation because we we learn from you know the earlier notions of uh, for instance community-based resource management, that issues of um, participation, issues of uh, equity can constrain, uh, you know, results. So in this case, you know, community-based conservation, system-based adaptation bring together diverse diverse actors with diverse, say, you know, and overriding or competing interests. You know, for instance, conservation does emphasize quite significantly around income generation for uh, from tourism while you know pastoral production emphasizes a lot around income production from you know livestock rearing and production which really um, are not very compatible uh, kind of um, means of production or modes of production and um, therefore this raises the question of who benefits who is involved who gets what uh, in the process of this in the process of this uh, these processes? And related to some of the issues you've raised around participation and inclusion, what are some of the recurring challenges that you've seen around this in in the case of Samburu? Yeah, so I think it's just to to mention that uh, just like other communities, uh, pastoralists are, are highly differentiated along uh, political, social, and, and and economic status. So in in the context of Samburu, for instance, they are those that tend to uh, focus more on nomadic pastoralism. And these are basically, say, people that have uh, yet to uh, sort of uh, adopt education as, as part of their uh, lives. But the others that have increasingly adopted education and don't intensively engage with uh, nomadic or semi-nomadic uh, pastoralism. So what we find is that this 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 likely clash between those kind of categories of people with those that um, are no longer a lot following uh, nomadic pastoralism or they have highly commercialized uh, pastoralism, uh, for instance, tending to promote and gain and benefit more from ecosystem-based adaptation. Well, uh, those that are still very faithful and um, following nomadic pastoralism find uh, this kind of interventions a bit disruptive because uh, they may, for instance, resort into sort of, you know, 
declaration of some areas as, as protected and therefore no go zones for them. And uh, that, that tends to result in, in back and forth and sort of even localized uh, conflict. And in your experience, have humanitarian response uh, been been quite suited at understanding this historical difference, but also the emerging ones that you mentioned? I think there's quite some progress in especially critical uh, agrarian scholarship, uh, critical adaptation scholarship, in highlighting the, the complex nature of communities that are often targeted for humanitarian inter- interventions. And I believe this is what has contributed, you know, to even recent uh, IPCC uh, understandings and guidance on the need for transformational, resilient, uh, I mean, you know, transformational uh, adaptation. So in this case, research has shown that, you know, previously humanitarian response has not been very successful in understanding uh, some of these complex dynamics, especially around differentiation at the community level and also um, the appropriateness of, of, of certain, um, you know, interventions that have been uh, implemented in some of these areas. We're talking about uh, coming from a history of humanitarian response that has, you know, sought to, for instance, undermine or uh, replace uh, mobile pastoralism through a promotion of sedentalization. So, but I think there is, you know, much better understanding now that uh, humanitarian responses need to be to be suited to the local context. In this case, you know, pastoral mode of uh, production, and therefore promotes and uh, complement this, other than you know, uh, constrain constrain it. Uh, and 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 that's why we are saying, I believe, a huge growth in in adoption, for instance, of cash transfers as a mode of um, humanitarian response uh, as compared for instance to the the delivery of um, of food and and water so and what the cash transfer a mode of humanitarian support does is that it provides more dignity to you know to to people that are in need of humanitarian uh, assistance because it does give them uh, the, the the ability to make choices on what they need to to purchase it can support mobility, for instance, by uh, allowing people that are migrating to access goods and services in other regions, other areas, rather than just, you know, uh, settling and relying on their small uh, settlement schemes for delivery of, um, of you know, of aid. Yeah, so I would say, yeah, there's some growth and a lot more still needs to happen in terms of uh, better understanding this context and promoting uh, the, the traditionally sort of resilient approaches to dealing with um, uh, humanitarian crisis. And so this is a bit connected, but some of these more long-term um, humanitarian responses, such as cash transfers, how can they be become better as well at um, taking into account diverse groups' uh, needs, for instance? As I mentioned earlier, it's important to understand that communities are, uh, pastoral communities, for instance, in, in places like Samburu are, socially, politically, and economically uh, differentiated. And and therefore, the question of targeting needs to be quite rethought. It's no longer uh, the traditional way of looking at, you know, people who have less livestock, for instance, as being the most vulnerable, or people that are still in migration as the most vulnerable. I think the situation has become very complex. For instance, now we have quite many um pastoralists in Samburu that have since dropped off uh, from 
nomadic pastoralism and they have uh, gone into other ways of, of, of obtaining uh, a livelihood, for instance, through small businesses. And, and, and sometimes they can be thought to be doing and faring well because they, they have what can be considered as a steady source of income through sales in, you know, from petty businesses. But um, we also know that because of the various shocks, these divergent livelihoods are also tend to also be disrupted. Talk about, for instance, the disruption that have been occasioned by COVID-19. So how, how does a humanitarian program respond to that kind of a, a complex situation? I think it asks for the broadening and the contextualization of, um, of, of needs uh, which are cut across diverse uh, livelihood strategies in, in, based on the changing you know, socio-economic and political context in these areas. And so perhaps my final question is, how do you see research in the humanitarian field, especially uh, contributing to these efforts towards developing solutions and strengthening uh, pathways towards climate resilient development? Yeah, so I think um, there, are, there are huge opportunities in terms of what we call transdisciplinary research. And this is whereby diverse uh, you know, researchers and practitioners and, and, and communities come together to look at the, the complex nature of the situations that are evolving in places such as Samburu. I mean, as you already mentioned, that climate change is it's, it's, it's a wicked problem in that it is complicating the humanitarian context of um, arid and semi-arid regions so that, you know, the traditional notions of, of response are no longer very applicable. So uh, there is opportunity in that um, uh, diverse, you know, researchers from diverse backgrounds, including practitioners, including communities, can come together and and identify the context-specific challenges that predispose people to vulnerabilities and, you know, promote joint um, approaches to the crafting of, of solutions to some of the, the, the problems that that, uh, that, that, that the people are experiencing. And of course, this can draw a lot from previous research that has, for instance, uh, shown that some of the uh, interventions that have been implemented in arid and semi-arid regions, such as, you know, large-scale irrigation programs, have not, have not really worked. And mobile pastoralism uh, has, over years, proved to be, you know, to be, to be more resilient. So research could, for instance, uh, explore ways of, you know, enhancing pastoralism and at the same time modifying it in ways that, you know, it, it brings together or promotes a transition uh, that enhances inclusion and, uh, you know, justice and, and uh, participation of, of, of all. Thank you. Um, and thanks so much for taking the time today, Jackson. It was really nice to have you and uh, hear from your experience. Thank you so much, Edwige. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the third podcast of this mini-series, Analyzing Humanitarianisms Through the Lens of Climate Resilient Development, Cases from Kenya. Today we discussed the case of Samburut and talked about several issues that are affecting humanitarian responses and planning for climate resilient development, such as historical marginalization, changes in conflict dynamics, short and drought cycles, and increased differentiation in livelihood practices. Our final episode features a conversation between experts in the field of climate change and humanitarian research, discussing further and bringing together the issue raised in these episodes.